0: All right, everybody, go ahead and stay standing. We're gonna read our scripture this morning and get into a time of teaching, so stay standing, please. All right, we're gonna read our scripture this morning, and when I get done, I'm gonna say, This is the word of the Lord. And your guys' response, our response as a church, is praise be to God. This is a way that we show authority for scripture, reverence for God's word. So that's like saying us saying amen to the reading of God's word. Sound good? All right, we're gonna read uh, Psalm 146, verses five through nine. It says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is is in the Lord, his God, who's made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners, he upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen.
1: You guys can go ahead and find your seat. All right, you guys, I am so happy that you're here. Um, If you're new, welcome. We're right in the middle um, of our fall series on prayer. And uh, so far, we've encouraged you to either start or sort of renew or develop your daily prayer rhythm. We've been using this app, which I absolutely love because it gets us all on the same page. It's an app called The Inner Room. And you can set notifications to three times a day, pray a simple meditation, gratitude in the evening, the Lord's Prayer in the morning, and then Prayer for the Lost at Midday. It's just phenomenal. And what this is all about is sort of reclaiming the ancient prayer rhythms of the early church. Not as individuals sort of on our own little isolated quest or whatever, but together as the Church of Christ being united around the Lord's Prayer and the daily prayer rhythms. But for today and for the rest of this series, we're going to be focusing on one thing, and that is taking your intimacy with God into the world. Taking your intimacy with God into the world. And hopefully over the last couple of months, I've done a convincing job exposing the fallacy about prayer that God is not a cosmic genie in a bottle. For the record, we do want your dreams to come true, particularly the dreams that God knows is best for you. But the goal of prayer is not for God to be, grant you three wishes or something like that. The goal of prayer is to be with God, full stop. It's to be with him. He's not a means to an end. He himself is the gift and the reward of prayer. And again, hopefully this series has helped you sort of rediscover that sacred miracle uh, that it is for you and I to enjoy God as a normal part of our everyday uh, lives. But the result of prayer, so the goal of prayer is to be with God, but the result of prayer, the byproduct of prayer, is that he will reform your heart and mind for the world. And by that I mean this. You cannot spend regular time with God without him deeply influencing the way that you see everything. He begins to take over and your thoughts and your mind, uh, the, the thoughts in your mind begin to be transformed to be like his. Now, I've been doing a lot of research over the last couple of years on sort of the modern missionary movement, right, which is the... Uh, the, the movement that, that invites people into the family of God, and there have been a lot of missionaries um, over the last several generations and centuries that have basically brought the gospel to the Western world. Now, not every missionary has been devoted to the presence of God in prayer, but I would argue, or I would be willing to bet, that everyone that you have heard of Uh, was devoted to God in prayer. Saint Francis of Assisi, for example, he lived the lifestyle of a monk, but he also lived into his calling and vocation as a missionary and as an evangelist. Mother Teresa, perhaps the most notable, uh, uh, widely recognized voice for the marginalized in the 20th century, she could have taught a masterclass on the presence of God, no joke. Amy Carmichael, Matthew Henry, D.L. Moody, John Wesley, all of these uh, world-renowned missionaries that have sort of set the trajectory for the modern church, all of them, their origin story is being set on fire by God in moments of prayer. And then one of my favorites, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. If you've been around Riverbend long, you know I bring this guy up from time to time, partly because his name is fun to say, but also because of his influence in the modern church. He is widely recognized as the leader of the hundred year long unceasing prayer meeting and the Moravian revival. And most of us, I say this with no stretch of the imagination, I think that most of us can trace our spiritual lineage going back to his little 18th century prayer chapel in the south of Germany. And Zinzendorf and his two friends, they started a religious order uh, at, at theology school when they were 17, and it was called the Order of the Mustard Seed, which is kind of a strange name, I'll give you that. But it's so cool what it was. They took three vows, three vows. Their vows were to be true to Christ, to be kind to all people, and to take the gospel to all nations. And as a part of these vows that they would renew every so often, they would also devote themselves to six practices, hospitality and the scripture and things like that. But their first devotion was to prayer, was to prayer. And it's not a stretch at all to say that the world has been changed by that prayer room and by those vows taken by those teenage boys back in the 18th century. Without them, God is good, we'd probably still be here, but they, without any stretch of the imagination, prayed in the Western missionary movement and the Great Awakenings that, uh, that you and I have come to know about from history. They prayed it in, they prayed it in. So if you are a part of a, people, a group of people who are passionately seeking God's presence, my firm belief is that you will be renewed by his never-ending love for the hurting and for the broken. And that is sort of the the foundational idea that will set us up for the rest of this series that we're talking about, that when you become a person of prayer, disclaimer, fair warning, when you become a person of prayer, he transforms your heart. He does. Because when you're with him, he influences you, and his heart is for the hurting and for the broken. Now, here's how I can be so sure. Again, prayer at its core is being with God, and this is who God is. God is the God of righteousness and justice. This is who God is. This is a central part of his character. So I want you to just buckle up because I'm about to hit you uh, with what I think is a really exciting biblical vision for God's righteousness and justice and why this is such a core idea in the family of God. So get ready to hear about God's heart right now. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face, Psalm 89, verse 14. So wherever God is reigning, there's righteousness and justice there because that's his character. That's what he's about, and that's what the very foundation of his throne is, righteousness and justice. Psalm 97, you can write that one down and look at it later. It says essentially the same thing. Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Moses is talking about uh, the purpose of the law, the way of life in the family of God, it says this. The rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are perfect justice. All of his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, righteous and upright is he. Just one more for right now, because there's many more I could give you, but just one more. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of God. This is a core part of God's character. And these are just a few examples that I could give you. These are integral. Righteousness and justice are integral parts of his character. And it, by that I mean it's like he it almost can't even help himself because this is who he is. He does righteous, he does righteousness. So we have to understand what these words actually mean because I think they've been sort of co-opted in the modern era and we've sort of lost track of their actual definition. And so in the Bible these are Hebrew words Sadiqah and Mishpat, Sadiqah and Mishpat, and they occur all over the Hebrew Scriptures, especially together. Sometimes separate, but especially they occur together, like this, Sadiqah and Mishpat. And when we read the word justice, or Mishpat, I think what comes into our mind is just about half right, because of the world that we live in, and again, we've sort of, at times, lost the full biblical picture here. What we picture, typically, is what I would call judgment, not justice. We picture like a courtroom drama or something like that, where God is making a ruling. God is pounding the gavel, and there's a price to pay. And I want to say that that's not all wrong. Uh, Maybe it's half or more right, but that's not the whole idea of mishpat. Mishpat is much more holistic than that. Scholar Christopher Wright, he writes this about mishpat. He says, in the widest sense, justice means to put things right. Come on, put things right to intervene in a situation that is wrong, oppressive, or out of control, and to fix it. This may include confronting wrongdoers on the one hand, and on the other, vindicating and delivering those who've been wronged. That is why the figures in the book of Judges have that name. They, quote, judged Israel by putting things right, militarily, religiously, legally. So in the broad- broadest terms, justice is a set of actions. It's something that you do. Amen. So this is why I believe we see so many scriptures attach justice to caring for the poor, for the down and out and for the marginalized. For example, look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. I told you this is going to be like Bible class today. We're bringing it today. So, yeah, it's good stuff. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. Or another way of looking at that is the refugee. He gives him food and clothing. He's vindicating and delivering the widow by taking good care of her when she has no family. She's taking care of the refugee, or he's taking care of the refugee when they have no one. Then Psalm 146, the scripture that we just read, the Lord sets the prisoners free, come on. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, come on. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the refugees. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. This is what should come into our mind when we think about justice. When you read the word justice in the Bible or when you use it in your common vernacular, think this. God is making things right again. And again, this is just true about him and it's also true wherever he reigns. So wherever you see God reigning, you should see his justice coming. And does he reign in the church? He reigns in the church. So his justice should also be reigning here as well. So if this is who God is, if he loves righteousness, if he loves justice, then setting things right is a central part of his mission to redeem the world. And as you become a praying person, like you have been over these last couple of weeks, starting, resuming, or developing your daily prayer rhythm. As you become a praying person, God's thoughts begin to possess your mind and your heart in such a way that you, not before you even become like a worker in God's mission, you become the kind of person who sees the things that God wants to do and the brokenness in the world around you, and you begin to long for things to be made right. See, this is something that I believe that God has done and is doing, and many of you who will join us for prayer, and as you devote yourself to the daily prayer rhythm, as you begin to burn within yourself with a holy longing for things to be made right, and this is what our world longs for too. They just wouldn't have the words from the scriptures to say it. As you become a praying person, I believe this is what happens to you. A longing inside of you is awakened to, for, uh, for God to make things right. Now, here's where I'm tempted to just sort of launch into the application and everything else. There is going to be several weeks for that in the coming weeks. But before we do any of that, I think it's important that we first look at Where things have actually gone wrong, because where we've seen things go wrong is actually how God wants to invite us into the actual solution. So we need to talk about that. We need to talk about where did things go wrong in the story of God? Where did things go wrong when it comes to injustice? If things need to be made right, what went wrong in the first place? Well, the short answer is that society, what we're a part of, became corrupt at the fall. Those words we've chosen intentionally, I intend to explain all of it. So in the beginning, God hand-fashioned all humans in his image with equal dignity and value. That's what God did when he created the universe. Here is uh, a scripture I hope is very familiar to you if you are a Jesus follower. If not, here it is right now. (laughs) Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule. They may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it rule over every fish in the sea, birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves along the ground. Amen. So what's here is uh, a lot of king and queen kind of royal language. And there's so much here. In fact, we're going to be doing a series on the beginning um, starting in the new year where we're going to talk all about this at length. So please stay tuned for that. But essentially what's going on here is that God has made all humans, everyone, in his image with intellect, authority, creativity, and the whole idea that we see here in the first couple of chapters of Genesis is that we would enjoy his divine hospitality and that we would partner with him in the flourishing of everything. And the idea of the cultural mandate, which again, we'll get into much more in the coming year, but the idea of the cultural mandate, the first command in scripture, is that we would partner with God to harness all of the raw materials, if you like, of planet Earth to create culture, to create society in such a way that everyone and everything will thrive or will flourish in relationship to God. So I just said a lot there. Most of those things are technical terms that probably need to be nuanced out, but for today, all we need to know is this. A marginalized community is not a part of God's original design in the Garden of Eden. Sexual exploitation, racial discrimination, uh, subjecting the poor to unfair treatment, this is not a part of God's original design. Squandering the earth's resources is also not a part of God's design either. But Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, right? That's the story. And what we have after that is the falling out of human rebellion. And one of the first things that we see after the rebellion is people devaluing other image bearers to get ahead. People devaluing other image bearers to get ahead. This is one of the first effects of the fall. We're gonna call that corruption. That's corruption. A couple of examples. Cain, oh, the first offspring, overpowers his brother Abel and kills him, Genesis chapter 4. A few generations later, we have Lamech. He's the first polygamist. He, he's gross, and he marries multiple women, and then he writes this whole sort of narcissistic poem about how proudly violent he is with them. His poem essentially is like, you can't, can't do anything about me I'm here, I'm exploiting you, I'm making many of you my wives, and you just have to deal with it. This is one of the first offspring. And then the whole project that God had in mind for the flourishing of all creation comes to this really sad, devolved state in Genesis chapter six where it says this, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's sad. Corruption spread quickly, and it spread in it, it, it really powerfully as well. So what's going on here is that over time, corruption in society, it breeds exploitation, it breeds marginalization, and that corruption uh, leads to a need for God's justice and redemption. And it's a spectrum, right? Because we've got Lamech, who is clearly uh, very sinister. He's physically dominating women into sex and other things. That's horrifying. But in other cases, I think it's more difficult to see. There's sort of like an ambient corruption that's sort of low grade, but it's everywhere, right? And there's people who are complicit in that corruption, And instead of the materials of earth being used for the flourishing of all creation, like God intended, the scales have been tipped to favor a certain group over another, the strong, the powerful, the rich, the majority, or whatever. Now, I'm not an expert on this stuff at all, but I have a hunch that this is how discrimination works its way into a culture. A minority group feels it intensely, but the majority group can hardly even see that it exists. So what we need is we need justice. That's what we need. That's the prescription from God is justice. We need God to make things right. Now, um, I want to get super philosophical on everyone here, but just go with me for a quick moment. In a Machiavellian world, which is like a medieval ethics world, injustice is just a part of the fabric. It's dog-eat-dog out there. That's what Machiavelli had to say. It's dog-eat-dog. All is fair in love and war. So the best that you can hope for is to just play the game of injustice and come out on top. That's Machiavelli. The best that you can hope for in a Darwinian world, it's just survival of the fittest. Again, life is cruel. The world is a cruel place. Good luck. Best of luck to you. In a Buddhist world, you escape injustice. You, you try and detach yourself from the pain of the world. The best that you can hope for is to become indifferent to it, right? These are the competing worldviews in play in our world today, but not in God's world. In God's world, injustice violates his design, and he's not about to leave it that way. He's got a plan to redeem it, and he's got the power to do so, and his reign Of righteousness and justice is coming soon. Amen? Amen. So as you become a praying person, what happens is you begin to come awake to God's beautiful design for righteousness and justice and how corrupt things are in the void of his presence and power and his reign and you feel yourself sort of drawn out of the sidelines or off of the sidelines of watching injustice happen around you and become indifferent to it or whatever, or just play the Machiavellian game of trying to beat the next guy sitting next to you, all of that begins to fall away. And what happens is you become activated to actually want to partner with God and bringing his justice and restoring righteousness and restoring what God wants in the world. That's what happens as you become a praying person, as his uh, character and as his thoughts begin to possess you, I believe that is what happens. Which is why I think all of the praying people in the room are some of the most active people on the sidelines of wanting to, or, excuse me, off of the sidelines, being activated to want to actually carry justice into God's world. Which brings us to the next biblical reality, which is super important. So if what we need is justice and God doesn't plan to leave, leave us this way, but he actually has made a promise to restore justice, how does he do it? Well, this is, God, this is how God does it. There's, I suppose there's many different ways that it could be done, but this is how God does it. God makes a promise to bless a family. Think about how personal that is. The Problem of injustice, what are we gonna do about it? God makes it promised to bless a family. Genesis 12, verses one through three. This is the blessing of Abraham. He says, I've chosen you. You're gonna be, a, uh, I'm gonna bless you so that you would become a blessing to everyone. And um, that's sort of cryptic Bible words, but, but they make a lot of sense and it's very clear. What God is doing is he's chosen to partner with some of his image bearers that he's going to engage with them personally. He's going to ensure their success. That's one way of describing the word blessing. And he's blessing so that they will spread that justice to the rest of God's image bearers, every nation, every people group. This was and still is the mission of God's people. Of course, Jesus reinterprets it and reapplies it in a couple of different ways, but this is the revelation of God's plan to redeem. His plan is to, through you, bring justice to the world and through the power of Jesus. Amen? So in Genesis 18, for example... Uh, This is what the angel of the Lord says. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children. Check this out. I thought about intentional when I read this verse this week. I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is sadikah and mishpat. Righteousness and justice, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. So the heritage of the family is going to be making right what is wrong with the world, upending the corrupt social structures and pursuing God's vision for the flourishing of everyone, getting back to the project that God had in mind from the very beginning. And we see this all over the Torah. Laws are given to give honor to sojourners and foreigners and equality to women and dignity to slaves and all of those things. And how does Abraham do on the whole of his life? How does Abraham do? He he actually does okay. Not great, but he does okay. There's actually this really beautiful thread of righteousness and justice woven throughout the whole Old Testament. For example, in the wisdom literature, Proverbs chapter 21 verse three says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. In other words, more than your sacrifices, just do justice and righteousness. But the story is filled also with tons of corruption. The family that God chose to be a blessing to all the nations actually got proud and egotistical about it, and they started losing their way. Um, The the way that I like to describe this is the the people of God, they lost the plot of what God wanted to do with them. So the blessing that God gave them to spread justice is actually being corrupted all over again. And it's a sad story. It gets so bad, in fact, that there's a massive part of the Old Testament that's all prophetic, and a lot of the prophets have this corrective kind of teaching. And again, this is a major section of the Hebrew Scriptures, but they they find themselves correcting the people of God for ignoring the cries of the oppressed. In fact, in one place, it's kind of scary. It says, because you have ignored the cries of the oppressed, you yourselves, I will not hear your prayers, which is wild. Isaiah 1 says, this is a direct quote from Isaiah 1, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, your new moons, your Sabbaths, your convocations, meaning all of your worship services. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Why? Learn to do right. Learn to seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In other words, he's saying, you cannot just come to me and pretend like everything is cool between us when you're not obeying and you're not pleading with the cause of the oppressed. Amos said said something remarkably similar. And by the way, the story of Jonah is the story of a prophet who is consciously trying to maintain his racial bias against the Assyrians while reluctantly obeying God. That's what it is. It's not about a whale, by the way. That's what we tell the kids, and it's a beautiful story, and it involves a whale, but the story is actually about a guy named Jonah who's Really, with bitterness in his heart, trying to maintain racial bias against the Assyrians and and refusing to obey God, but then finally reluctantly obeying God. And it doesn't go well for him. He's miserable. He dies a miserable man. God ultimately gets his way. He brings redemption, but that's not how it goes for Jonah. And at the close of the Old Testament, Malachi gives us this summary reminder, which hopefully uh, this is another one that you're familiar with, particularly if you were in Awanas growing up. I know you know this one. And if you don't get that reference, Awanas is like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts for Christian kids. You get a vest and patches and there's a mascot. and It's a bunch of fun. (laughs) He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Come on. Amen. Amen. This is the summary statement of the prophetic writings, I, I believe. And right when the story is at this sort of all-time low, there's like 400 years that in the world of, or the story of the Bible we call, like just the silent years. And at the, at the conclusion of all of that, it feels like all hope is lost. And then that's when Jesus shows up. Come on. Yeah, it's good. Amen. Come on. Amen. And when he shows up, Jesus fulfills God's plan to redeem, to make right, and by the way, injustice was rampant during Jesus' time. It was really, really bad. Israel was being oppressed by Rome at the time, who had sort of uh, violently dominated the world. There were also these guys by the name of the Herods who were ruling as well, and they were super corrupt and wealthy, but they were exploiting people to get there. And then within Israel, you had all kinds of different factions. It was like opposing political parties. You had the Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots, of Seed, and they all disagreed very, very sharply. And by this point, they had sort of openly opposed uh, and and had prejudice for the Gentiles. And they also, like, they treated the Samaritans, who were sort of uh, mixed-race people or whatever. They were segregated to a whole other part of the country because of their ethnicity. So this is a minefield of racial tension and injustice. Sound familiar? Maybe just a little? Or is it too soon? I don't know. I can't read your faces right now. (laughs) The reality is we're living in a time where there's a lot of tension and a lot of injustice going on around us and so Jesus tiptoed around it all he didn't have much to say about it he didn't like to rock the boat or try and offend anyone or change the status quo right wrong like 1000% wrong in fact He came and he was dead set on turning over the corrupt power structures of his day. He pushed every single boundary that he could. He was recklessly, with his own life, fighting for the cause of the oppressed in remarkable ways. I could give you dozens of examples. I'm gonna give you four really quick ones, okay? (laughs) Luke 7, Mark 7, John 4, Luke 4. If you're taking notes, write those down. We could do a teaching on each of these. But Luke 7, Jesus is having dinner with the religious elites, right? The people who were in power, people who were in charge. And Jesus, many different times throughout his ministry, calls them out for their corruption. And they invite him over because they want to trip him up. And this is what the scripture tells us. And a woman, a woman uh, pushes her way in to where they're having dinner and falls at Jesus' feet to confess her sin. And it's like this embarrassing display because she's crying and she's got this perfume that she's pouring all over Jesus and she's kissing his feet. And the elites who invited him there are standing at the ready. They are appalled that Jesus would allow this woman, uh, who's probably a prostitute, come in and, and to do that to him. And this is how Jesus calls them on it. He says, you didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time that I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as great as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests Uh, began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. 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 So what you have is Jesus challenging what real righteousness is, challenging what real holiness is. This woman who's probably lived a life that we wouldn't want to talk about, it would be embarrassing to talk about, has actually been forgiven over and against the religious elites. Also, Mark chapter seven, a Syrophoenician woman, this is a Gentile woman, which if you knew the culture of the day, you knew they were not to associate with each other. But a Gentile comes to her, and ask, or a Gentile comes to him, Jesus, and asks him to heal her daughter. And Jesus is astonished by her faith. He says that he's astonished by her faith in, in Mark chapter seven. And then the very next snapshot that we get in Mark seven is Jesus confronting the lack of faith of the religious elites. And he calls them whitewashed tombs. So the gospel narrative is setting up this dichotomy between the gentile woman who should be far from God, who's actually close to God, and the ones who should be close to God are actually very corrupt and perpetuating injustice. John 4, a Samaritan woman, he goes out of his way, extending dignity, value, honor to her. Again, defying convention in order to make his point. Women and racial minorities are equal in the family of God. Amen. And then this is not to mention the story about Jesus turning over tables in the temple because of injustice against the poor. That's the essence of it. Or his anger at the Pharisees for using a disabled man as a pawn in their theological debate with him. Or his parables about unlikely heroes in the kingdom of God. And if you still need convincing, here's something else that Jesus has to say in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of all of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the, f- the latter without neglecting the former. He's saying, you guys have lost the plot. It's the same thing that the, the, the prophets were telling the Old Testament folks. You guys have lost the plot. You're really particular about the rules that you follow, but you're really missing the heart of all of it. So he's radically upending these corrupt social systems that favor the elite, and he's using his influence to do justice. This is what Jesus is up to. He's upending corrupt social systems that favor the elite. He's using his influence to do justice, to actually make it right. Last scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He was a part of the corporate worship of the church. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to, to, handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to who? Poor. Sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He didn't have a mic, but if he had one, he probably would have dropped I love that. And most of these stories, the leaders are circling up afterwards in the parking lot and like trying to figure out how they can get rid of Jesus. Literally, that's exactly what's going on. we got to kill this guy. Listen to all the things that he's saying. He's actually calling us out, and he's elevating the poor, the widow, the marginalized. And eventually, they get their way. They end up killing him. Of course, that had much better implications, amazing implications. See, Jesus is placing a special emphasis on the marginalized because he's bent towards making things right and just. This is, he's geared towards this, so he places special emphasis on people who are marginalized because he's about making things right and doing justice. That was a little bit of Bible stuff. Trust me when I say that there is way, way, way more scripture that supports the points that I've been making about God's character. The central question for the rest of our series together over these next several weeks is when you meet with Jesus daily and you devote yourself to prayer, to listening for his voice, coming awake to the presence of God, and if this is the beat of his heart, how long until you think he lights that fire in your heart too? You know what I'm saying? if this is where his heart is bent to caring for the down and out, when you give your life to him and when you begin paying attention to his voice, how long do you think he starts talking to you about the exact same stuff? Again, I think he's awakening a hunger and a holy longing in you and I to see justice and righteousness reigning on the earth. In my experience, it doesn't take too long. When we start praying with fervency and passion, this awakens in us really quickly. There's a really cool story in our generation, a woman by the name of Christine Kane. She's an Australian woman, incredible ministry to plant churches all over the world. And um, when she, she describes her like personal prayer revolution, and as she does, she learns about the human trafficking crisis that's going on in her home country of Greece, and it totally rocks her to her core. And so in addition to planting churches and everything else that she does, she began this ministry called A21, which is all about rescuing primarily girls out of the Southeast uh, portion of the world, Southeast Asia, um, out of the sex trade. She describes this as being like, a, like as a part of her revelation, a re- revolution in prayer. And I believe that as God begins to speak to you and as you begin to devote yourself in prayer, then this is something that awakens inside of you. So this is an obvious call to action for us. We, we are meant to carry Jesus' justice project forward. Wherever he reigns, righteousness and justice are soon to follow. Wherever Jesus is reigning, righteousness and justice are soon to follow because it's the foundation of his throne, Psalm 94. And this is his church. Again, he reigns here, he reigns here. And so righteousness and justice are gonna follow. And so the the call is to follow his example. Simplest application ever. (laughs) Follow his example. But I'm not suggesting that we all just sort of quit our jobs and get a master's degree in missionary strategy, right? Or justice or whatever. There are great master's programs out there that you you could do. But that's not what all of us are going to do. You could start a highly complex nonprofit organization. Maybe one or two of you, three or four of you. Ali's back from Brazil, and she's um, part of a ministry that she's founded, End Sex Trafficking, Prevent Sex Trafficking in Northern Brazil. Well, I suggest that we pray. That's what I suggest. I suggest that we pray, yeah. and as you pray without ceasing, I believe that as you surrender your heart to him, that Jesus is going to awaken your heart for the hurting and for the broken. And he's going to compel us in the language of the New Testament. The love of Christ compels us. So he's going to compel us to then act justly. So justice cannot be sustained. Mission cannot be sustained without the presence of God. So let's not all start like 50 different ministries and no prayer team. Right? Right? That's a problem. What we need is we need to begin with where Jesus teaches us to begin, which is in the quiet place with God, in the daily rhythm of prayer, day in, day out, moment by moment, moment by moment, moment by moment. This is the thing that we see modeled by Jesus. Also, Elijah, if you've been here for the past month, there's like this couple stage pattern. With Jesus' life and ministry where he retreats or withdraws into the quiet place or the Aremos, the mountains. And that's where he prays with the Father and connects with the Father. And then at the conclusion of his withdrawing into the quiet, he re-engages with the hurting and broken civilization, society, community that he's a part of. And so we need both of those rhythms We need the rhythm of quiet prayer, also uh, corporate prayer. And then we also need to engage or re-engage with the hurting and the broken. And I want to just end with a a couple of really brief reflections. And we're going to pray that God would begin to awaken our hearts for the injustice and the brokenness in our world. But I do have to um, warn you. (laughs) and, And that... I just, what I mean by that is that some of these things you can't unpray. You know what I mean? Once you start praying in this way, something begins to awaken in you. I couldn't turn it off if I tried. I've seen God's love, I've experienced it, I've tasted His love. He's also given me a privileged position in his family. He's given me a lot of resources and he's given me a lot to to manage and to hopefully manage well. That's going to lead me to act justly. And that comes at personal cost and sacrifice. So I'm sorry, not sorry, but when we pray, there's certain things we can't unpray. And I hope what it does is it awakens a holy fire in you to see God's justice coming here. So here's how we act justly the Jesus way. Right? There's lots of conversation about justice, which most of which we have not talked about today. Sort of the buzzword bandwagon of justice in our culture. I haven't even talked about that. Um, And that's on purpose. We don't have time for the nuanced conversation that that is. But here's how you act justly the Jesus way from the scriptures. First of all, Jesus is first drawn to the marginalized. He's not waiting for the marginalized to show up to him. That happens, but he's on the look out. He's searching for them. So um, it's possible you're here and you're part of a marginalized community, and in which case I'm so thrilled that you're here and it's our job to restore faith in God to you and to love you well. But for many of us, most of us, if not all of us, we, we actually need to be on the lookout for people who are in marginalized communities, both in our area and globally. You don't have to look far. They're around. And so this involves venturing out of your comfort zone. Um, there's a man, a gentleman in our church, who I don't see him here this morning. Hopefully he'll be at the 11 a.m., He's got a nice place and loves Jesus and everything, but he decided to spend 30 days living on the streets of Bend try and connect with and engage with the houseless community here. It's a wild thing, but he's being drawn to the marginalized, and he's saying yes to that, which I love. The next thing... uh, that Jesus does very clearly is he listens to the stories of the marginalized. We're not awesome at listening in our culture. We like to voice our opinions, but we're not actually that good at listening. So I, I don't, you know, maybe you're part of a political party or something like that that like taking part in some of the social justice work that's going on around the world. Some of that can be really awesome. I'm certainly not disparaging it, but I'm not offering you a political solution. That's not even what we're talking about right now. We're talking about real, human, face-to-face, long-form conversation where you ask questions and you listen well when it comes to people who are marginalized. This might be someone in a different socioeconomic strata as you. It might be someone who's a different color of skin than you. I don't know. But find people who are different from you and listen well to their story. The next thing that Jesus does is he empathizes with their pain. Sort of lost this ability too because we're so, we've got empathy fatigue. i have talked about that before. We have empathy fatigue in our culture because we're supposed to care about all of these things but we're missing the people right in front of us so Jesus empathizes in fact in Ephesians 4 29 it says that the people of Jesus need the wisdom to know what to say according to the need of the moment so that it brings grace to the hearers it Means a lot of things I think it applies here Jesus empathizes with people who are down and out empathy is a humanizing honoring act and when you listen to someone and you empathize with the pain of their story it humanizes them it restores dignity to them next Jesus confronts the corrupt powers on their behalf um, Jesus he did that he was willing to take the unpopular position at great personal cost to himself but he did that For the sake of the oppressed and for the sake of the voiceless. I love that about Jesus. He's willing to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. And not the least of which, Jesus dies for them. (laughs) Doing justice means sacrificing. It just does. Malachi 6 says that we have to justice not say nice things about justice <laughs> you have to do justice hopefully my sermon today has been compelling but if I'm talking it but not actually doing it then what is the point we need to do justice we need to sacrifice the way that Jesus sacrificed for us and for them we need to ourselves sacrifice and then finally Jesus invites them into his family I love this Jesus' solutions are human, personal, family solutions. Don't you love that? He's not like, oh, here's 50 bucks. Best of luck to you. He sacrifices, but then he's invitational. Why don't you come and be a part of my family now? I welcome you in. This is what it means to do justice the Jesus way much, much more on that as we go along throughout the series. But I hope that as you pray, you begin to see these themes recurring in your mind and you begin to have the Spirit of God take possession of your mind and awaken a hunger and a longing to do justice and righteousness in our world. Amen? Let's stand.